a little help from my friends. And I wanted to take some time at the beginning of this message and just talk about what does it mean to be a friend. Now, I think all of us have had some experiences in our life where we needed a friend to show up. We had some maybe crisis, tragedy, just moments we needed help. We just needed someone to be there. One of the times that sticks out most in my mind is there was a moment when our, our oldest son, he was eight months old at the time, and we were living in Bend, Oregon near my husband's parents, and they live on 10 acres, just beautiful, beautiful land over there in Bend, Oregon, and they were gone, and so my husband was helping just change all the sprinklers and take care of the property, and all of a sudden, I get this phone call from him. This is the phone call you don't, you don't really ever want to get, because I answered the phone, and he said, hey, I just broke my leg. Could you come get me? And I went, what? Say again. How do you know you broke your leg? He said, well, I can see the bones sticking out of it. And then my second thought was, how come you're talking so normal then if that's what just happened, right? Um, but I, I throw my eight-month-old son in the car, and I drive out there to go and get my husband and get him in the car. But it's a little bit tricky trying to help my husband with the very broken leg and hold my eight-month-old son. So I then called my sister. My sister was nine months pregnant at the time. It's one of her favorite stories because she shows up at the emergency room and there is actually this picture. I don't know what we were even doing thinking about this in the moment, but we have a picture somehow of her pushing Danny in a wheelchair into the hospital as I'm carrying our eight-month-old son and she just thinks that's the best that she was there in that moment that we needed her. She's now an outreach pastor with us in, in Spokane, Washington at Sun City. But we all have those moments where we, we need a friend to show up. We need someone. You know, what's difficult is when someone doesn't actually do that. Or maybe they're there for the moment, but they're not there for the aftermath. You know, because when we walk through something really difficult, it's not just an event. A lot of times there's a whole season that follows. Maybe they just don't get us and they don't understand what we need and we don't know how to communicate it to them. And a lot of times, I think we end up in a place where we think like, you know, it's not worth the effort to reach out. I would if I really believed they could help, if they knew how to help, if they knew how to be present in this moment. And sometimes we get in a, a space where we just feel isolated and alone, and it's not because we don't want friends, but we just don't really know how to bring them in at a level that they can help. And so today, I just want to spend some time looking at what it is that Jesus taught us about friendship. Because if there's one thing that I've learned is that experience should not be my teacher. Experience will teach me all the wrong things about the life that God has actually called me to. And I have to go back and say, God, you help me understand how I'm supposed to live this life that you've called me to. So I want to bring us back to this understanding that Jesus, one of his primary titles that he was known by was friend of sinners. He's a friend of sinners. Now I have one high school student and two junior high students. My youngest, I have two boys and a girl. My youngest, just this year, graduated from elementary school. So I'm, I'm living in the land of teenagers and tweens right now in my life. I get lots of just moments where they're all around and watching the awkward interactions and, and listening in on just the interesting conversations that are going on in that season of life. No offense if you're younger. I know it just feels all normal, all normal, right? But... Um, 
I think about how there's some people when you're in that, that zone that just seem real natural at making friends. I, I don't know if they're born with that gene or what it is that happened, but it's like everyone gravitates to them, right? You ever notice that? There's the cool kids, and everyone's friends with the cool kids. And then there was me when I was that age. <laughs> and I was not one of the cool kids. I was like the quiet wallflower, kind of try to blend in with the background and whatever was going on back there. And there, for whatever reason, it kind of put off this vibe of, I don't really want to be friends with you. You shouldn't enter any closer, right? Stay away. And I think about Jesus as the friend of sinners, and I think Jesus was not the person that just came for the people that were easy, the people that felt natural, the people that everyone else thought like obvious friends with Jesus. That makes sense. I saw this coming a mile down the road. Of course, they would be on the in crowd with each other. Jesus came as a friend of sinners. Those that everybody was like, what in the world? Why would Jesus pick them? What is Jesus doing hanging out with them? Why would he invite them in closer? Look at what's going on in their life. And yet he says in John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. I just want you to notice what's going on in this moment because Jesus, he's talking to his, his disciples. They're all really close, but he's also talking through them to all of us that are going to put our trust in him. He's about to walk to the cross in the dynamics of the relationship that we have now available to us with God are changing forever. This is a life-altering moment. I want to be friends with you. Not just you call me master. You just do what I say. I want to invite you in as close as you can get with all the force of heaven. Jesus is saying you're no longer alone. It's not just you. All by yourself. It's not you with nobody really understanding what's going on. It's not you having to make all the decisions and face all the pressures and deal with all the things. With all the force of heaven, Jesus is saying to each of them, to each of us, you are not alone. Now, my family got to be a part of a very tangible expression of that this last week. My sister and her husband and their three kids, they are foster parents and they do respite foster care. So a lot of times the kids that come into their home, they're just there for a little period of time before they can, they can place them in a forever home, someplace that can have them for longer. They're a bridge. But three years ago, a little girl came into their life who changed everything for them. And I just want to show you a picture of her here today. This is Amelia. On the, on the left, this is Amelia when she first came into foster care. And the cuts on her face and the bruises that you see are from a, a dog bite that nobody tended to. She ended up in foster care and she was alone. Surrounded by people, but alone. This last Tuesday, after three years... We got to gather in a packed out courtroom, along with all of our family. And her name 
changed forever. She became a permanent part of my sister and her husband's family. There's a picture they're going to show you of them with the judge here today. It's Amelia with her brand new family forever. Now think about, think about what happened in her story. Someone chose her. Someone said, you're no longer doing life all by yourself. Instead, you are going to be part of our family. And Psalm 68, 6 says, God, he sets the lonely in families. He's the one that takes those who are all by themselves and he brings them in to be a part. And what I want you to understand here today is that Jesus teaches us how friendship is supposed to look like. He doesn't just say, I'll be your friend. He says, let me help you understand what you're missing about friendship. Because experience has taught you something that's likely different from how it's supposed to go. And here's the things that Jesus teaches us about friendship. First, that it's costly. It's, it's very costly. He's about to walk to the cross when he's actually talking to his disciples. He's about to pay everything that he can possibly pay. He's about to suffer unimaginable pain so that he can give us his name. And he can make us his friends. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. But here's the second thing he teaches us about friendship is that it is rich in resource. He says, I come to make you my friends. But with all the force of heaven, you now have an availability to come to the Father that you didn't have before. It's a little bit like when you have that friend that has the pool, that friend that has the really well-stocked refrigerator. My kids, one of them, during COVID, you know, all the gyms are shut down and they can't go and play sports anywhere. But one of them has a friend whose dad is a doctor and he, he built out his own gym inside his house so they can play basketball whenever they want to. And that is a fun friend to have when you're going through COVID and you can't play basketball anywhere else, right? And you are rich in resource. When you are a friend of God, Matthew 7, verse 9 says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, then though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Here's the third thing that Jesus teaches us about friendships, is that it's permanently available. My sister and her husband and their three kids, they stood before the judge, and the judge asked them, now you understand that today her last name is going to change, and she will be just like your biological children. From this day forward, she, Amelia, becomes a speedic, and she is yours permanent, heavy decision. There wasn't a dry eye in the room as the judge said, at this moment, at 11.28 on July 6, your name will forever be different. Think about what Jesus did for you. We sang about it this morning. My name is no longer the same. Permanently changed. Now you can choose. 
You can choose to walk away. You can choose to say, I don't want to have anything to do with this. But you got to understand, the light is always going to be on for you. Because when Jesus made the decision to include you in part of his family, it was not a light decision. He said, forever, I'm right here. And you can always find your way back home. It says inside of Ephesians 1.5, God decided in advance to adopt us into his family, to bring us to himself through Jesus Christ. And this is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. If you would, just for a moment, if you would indulge me, I met someone on a plane coming over here, and we had a conversation, and, and we were talking all about his own journey and where he was with God. And so I just want to just spend one moment and say, Brendan, if you found this feed, that was a divine moment, and that's for you. You can walk away from God, but he's not walking away from you. Now, it's an amazing thing to be a part of God's family. But sometimes we find ourselves asking this question, what's it really like? What kind of strings are attached? If I get on the inside of this family, is it all judgment and control? And would it just be better if I stayed far away from that whole thing? In fact, I think lots of people in our culture are asking that question about God and his people. Do I really want to be on the inside? And I want you to understand, all of the Bible from beginning to end is helping us to understand what it's like to be on the inside. It's helping you to understand his character and his goodness and his grace and what it is that he's called you to as part of the family of God. And I felt led here today to bring us back to 1 Kings 17 and look at just the perspective that this particular passage gives us about who God is as our friend and what it's like to be in the inner circle. And it's a story about Elijah, if you don't know this particular passage. He's a prophet, and he's a prophet at a very key time because all of the people around him worshipped a false god called Baal. And Baal is the one that they believed was in control of all of the rain and the dew. So God sends Elijah with a word from him saying, I am going to dethrone this false God that you have put your trust in, and I am going to make sure you understand I am the one and only true living God. And here's how that's going to take place. There's going to be no rain, and there's going to be no dew for a period of days. So let's read about it, 1 Kings 17. It says, Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, he told King Ahab, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you. For I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him, and he camped beside Kareth Brook east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. But after a while, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. Now just consider for a moment. Elijah is being used by God in an instrumental way, and yet he's still experiencing the same drought that everyone else is. You ever feel like that? God, I'm doing everything I know to do. Show up on Sunday. I do my part. 
do whatever they need, just trying to be faithful, why am I still experiencing so much pain? Why is it so difficult? Why did my marriage fall apart? Why did I get COVID? Why are the people around me struggling? Why are my kids struggling? God is using Elijah in a powerful way and he finds himself instrumental in what it is that God's doing, but still experiencing the same drought everyone else is. Look at verse 4. It says, drink from the brook, eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. Now, ravens, ravens are not the choice that I think that I would assume God would make. Ravens are unclean birds. God had already instructed them, don't eat these birds. In fact, they're unclean, they're gross. They also show up when anything is died. In fact, they become like an omen throughout cultures, all throughout history of death because people would see the ravens and they'd know those ravens found something to eat and it's not something pretty. There's death there. So these birds became known as these omens of death and you didn't want to see them showing up and, and God, why of all things you choose ravens to bring the food that I need to live every single day? an interesting choice. An experience had taught him ravens are the last thing that I'd be looking for God to use to bring me something that I need. But I wonder what it was like as day after day after day he watched those birds show up on the horizon. How God began to reorient his thinking. God began to help him understand something that was important, something that we would see a thread throughout all of Scripture, is that God actually loves to bring the provision for life on the wings of death. And all throughout Scripture, we see this theme taking place. In fact, our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ brought the provision for our life on the wings of death. And we look at Isaiah 53, 5, and it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace. It was on Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. God begins to reframe our thinking. And even as he is tearing down that false belief that Baal could provide what only he could provide, he's also tearing down this thought that death has the final say. That death somehow has more authority than the God that we serve. And he's bringing this provision for life on the wings of death. And I think about how the early church, they so began to understand this, embrace it, internalize it, it became who they were, that they looked for God to be doing something incredible every time difficulty and pain showed up. 
fact, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. This affliction that, you know what, if I was in their shoes, I would not call momentary and light. I walked through COVID, and I didn't call that momentary and light. People were not being martyred all around me. My family was not being drug off and thrown into prison. People were not going into exile. I was not questioning whether or not I would even see the next day. I didn't call it momentary and light. But these, these early church disciples, they did. Is it because they began to understand? Even though we see death on the horizon, our God, He brings the provision for life on the wings of death. You know, this last year, we actually experienced more more difficulty with cancer in our church community than we did COVID. A lot of people that came down with cancer. One of them in particular is a family of five, five children. And I remember the day that we got the phone call that it was terminal. Stage four, there was nothing that they could do. It's just a matter of time, they said. Literally, there's nothing We'll try chemo, but all it will do is extend life. All we knew to do is pray. Our God brings the provision for life on the wings of death. He's trained us to see it that way. So we know to go to our knees. God began to do something that he's still writing in our story. But all of a sudden, the cancer the surprise of the doctors did start to go away. They were able to remove a part of the stomach that it was in. And then there was an interesting thing that they could possibly do. They had to find the, the specific person that would even be willing to do it. But they found this doctor that would be willing to do a live liver transplant. And then someone in our church said, I feel like I have that liver. And they went through all of the testing. Time after time after time, it seemed like this is, this is not going to happen. And then just a couple weeks ago, we got the call. It said, like, this person is the match. And next month, they'll fly to New York, these two families, and one will donate part of their liver to this other person. But then again, they went to New York, and all of a sudden, there's this thing that showed up on a different organ and they're like, we might have to shut it all down and we go back to prayer. We get the call that the the scans are clear. It's going to be fine and we're going to move forward. Moments before, we're celebrating literally in the moment when we get a new phone call. And the church plant team that's a part of our church right now, they're here for a year before they're about to go to Seattle. There's a new diagnosis of a different member, terminal no hope. And I thought, God, we have not even wrapped up one. But here's what I know. You bring the provision for life on the wings of death. Yesterday, 
all of our team was out serving our community, and me and my husband, we went and we found this family that had just received this terminal diagnosis. We walked over a mile and a half just to find them because they're out on some trail cleaning it up, and we sat there on the trail and we prayed, God, we don't know, but you do. And while we don't know the answer to all of the questions and we don't know how the story wraps up, here's what we do know. God, you bring the provision for life on the wings of death. So we are not going to let our eyes settle on everything that we see and know and experience. We're going to lift our eyes to the hills from whence comes our help because our God, he brings the provision for life on the wings of death. And he would give you here today that if you're going to be friends with God, he wants to change the way that you see. And you get that diagnosis and that relationship falls apart and everything feels painful. And I want you to know you can begin to look to the sky. And even when you see death coming, know that God has provision for life coming with it. But then it doesn't end there. Because the brook actually dries up and now there's no more water. So here's what God does next. Starting in verse 10, it says, The Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I've instructed a widow there to feed you. Really, God? First you send the ravens. You send the birds of death. And now a widow? But that's, that's not even the whole story. It goes on to say, so he went to Zarephath and he arrived at the gates of the village and he saw a widow gathering sticks and he asked her, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? And as she was going to get it, he called to her, bring me a bite of bread too. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God, I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. I've only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. Interesting friends that you send, God. She can't provide for herself. She's at the end. But here it says... God instructed the widow to feed Elijah. Now, he didn't say, Elijah, I have been providing for you in the most miraculous of ways. I have been showing up, and day by day, you've had everything that you need. So, I'm now going to send you to someone who needs that kind of provision in their life. He didn't send Elijah to provide for the widow. He sent Elijah to go to the widow to be provided for. Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know that he told her, hey, you just do what it is that I tell you to do, and God is going to provide. He'll make sure that the oil lasts and that you have everything that you need, and so she did it. And they live, her and her son, and Elijah is provided for. But here today, I just want to remind you, a lot of times, we miss the potential of what God's doing. He doesn't see things the way everyone else sees things. And we think the story's over. And we think he's done. But he's just getting started. And you might feel like that widow. God, I, I don't have anything to give in this season. I'm tired. COVID's been difficult. 
The season's been hard. I don't have anything. God would say, just bring what you have. I'll take what you have and I'll make it more than enough. Maybe you're like Elijah. God would wake you up here this morning to remind you that just because it looks like God's done does not mean that he actually is. And I think we're living in a day where the culture around us is actually thinking that very thing about the church. And I hear these kind of things all the time. Not everyone's coming back after COVID. People are tired and people are burnt out and people don't even know, is the church relevant anymore? Is God really among this people? Is God doing anything on the face of the earth today? And I would tell you, well, church, that God is just getting started. And just because the rest of the culture looks at the church and says, I don't know if there's anything to give does not mean that God doesn't have something to do through his people. Something to give in this hour and you are part of it. God wants to do something in and through you that is significant, not just for this area, but for the nation. Even when there's a drought going on, there would be a well, a well of his provision for anyone who would come close. And it's why I believe we can say, along with the early church and the Apostle Paul, as he put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. And I believe that God brought me here today to tell you this. When you're friends with Jesus, his friends become your friends. And they're unlikely friends. But look for the ravens. And don't write off the widow. Because God will send you the help you need from the most unlikely sources.